The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter and the second verse. The second verse in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. These mighty words come, as you realize, after that first verse, which we were considering together last Sunday morning, and I would remind you of the context. Be ye therefore followers of God, as children beloved, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. I would remind you again that in these two verses, the apostle is making the highest conceivable appeal to Christian people for conduct and behavior worthy of their high calling in Christ Jesus. He has other arguments that he uses, and we followed them. He's used the argument of regeneration and the rebirth in chapter 4. And there also he has used the argument about our having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and how we mustn't grieve him. But here I say he uses the highest possible argument. There's nothing higher than this. And we've already considered part of it. We are to be imitators of God. There's nothing beyond that. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. There's no standard beyond that. That's the acme. That's the ultimate. And we spent our time last Sunday morning in considering this as to uh, the nature of the argument he uses, our sonship, our relationship to God, and how it inevitably should affect us and influence us. And we also considered how we were to do so, and saw that we could most conveniently interpret that in the light of what our Lord himself taught in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. We are to be like God in that, that we are to love our enemies, do good to them that hate us, and pray for them that persecute us and malign us. Very well, but the apostle doesn't leave it there. That's not enough. And, he says, walk in love, even as Christ also hath loved us, etc. Now, in other words, the apostle's teaching is this, that the whole of our life as Christians is to be ordered in the realm of love. This is the ultimate test of our Christian profession. A few Sunday mornings ago we were looking at that first part of 1 Corinthians 13, and there it is. It's, it's everywhere in the New Testament. Uh, all our professions and claims and activities and everything else have got to be measured by this yardstick of love. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not loved sounding brass, tinkling cymbal. Though I have 
this wonderful understanding and enlightenment in truth and doctrine and faith so that I could remove mountains profiteth me nothing. Though I give my body to be burned, not only am I very active in church or religious or Christian work, but even give my body to be work, to be burned and have not love, it's no good. There's nothing in it. It's of no value at all. Love is the, is the test. Everything in the Christian life is designed to bring us to this condition. We are to be like God, as the children of God, and God is love. And therefore the greatest characteristic of our lives, as the Apostle puts it, is to be love. Walk in love. That's to say, our whole conversation, our whole living, moving, everything we do, is to be in this realm and atmosphere of love. Very well, the Apostle is very anxious that we should know what that is. He's already put it, put it to us partly in terms of what God has done for us. It's at the end of that fourth chapter. He says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath also forgiven you. That's uh, part of the manifestation of the love of God. But as he here goes on to show, the highest manifestation of God's love is that which we see in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and in his work on our behalf. Walk in love, he says, as, even as, that's it, even as Christ also hath loved us. And then he goes on to show us how our Lord has shown that love to us. Now, here once more. I cannot proceed without turning aside to say this, that we are confronted by one of these amazing things in the style and characteristic of this great man of God as a writer. Here you see, in this most practical section of uh, his uh, epistle, when he's talking about our behavior towards others, our speech and our conduct, down in the minutest details, suddenly in the midst of it all, he throws this tremendous statement of the doctrine of the atonement. You see, he can't leave it alone. And he can't leave it alone for the reasons I was suggesting last Sunday morning, that in the Christian life, doctrine and behavior are indissolubly linked together. And they must never be separated. It's no use talking about conduct and behavior without doctrine. It's impossible. And when people neglect doctrine, you'll always see it in their lives. But on the other hand, doctrine alone is of no value. The two things do go together. They must go together. They will go together. And here, you see, suddenly, as I say, unexpectedly in the midst of this most practical section, he suddenly holds before us one of his own greatest and mightiest statements of the doctrine of the atonement. I don't know what you feel, but I always feel that there is nothing more exciting than to read this man's epistles. You never know what's coming. And if you still feel that when you finish the first three chapters of the epistle to the Ephesians, you finished with doctrine, you see you're making a big mistake. Suddenly it comes out when you're least expecting it. It doesn't matter where he is nor what he is handling. 
the, these great central truths, they're always in his mind and in his heart, and he suddenly throws them out without any warning whatsoever. And here we are confronted by such an example of his method this morning. Now, he therefore, it seems to me, tells us two main things, and we must look at them. First, of course, he gives us this objective statement of the doctrine of the atonement. He defines it. He states it clearly. It is a great doctrinal statement. But then secondly, he shows us how that is to influence us and to become our example as Christian people. The two things are here. And then, as we look at them, it behoves us, obviously, to keep certain points in our mind. The first thing is this. The Scriptures are never satisfied with a mere general statement about the love of God. Now, there is a statement that I could elaborate at very great length. And indeed, it needs to be elaborated at the present time, though I'm not going to do so. It seems to me that the fundamental trouble, speaking generally in the Christian church today, is that the love of God is thought of and conceived of in purely general terms. The love of God is being put up against the doctrines, and that is why the love of God is not being understood nor appreciated as it should be. The Bible never leaves the love of God as something vague and general. You know I'm referring to this loose talk that goes today. People say, oh, of course, I'm not interested in your doctrines and in, the in your theology. I I'm interested in love, and what we want is to get everybody to be loving one another, and we must be manifesting this love. And they don't tell you what the love is. They don't understand the love of God. They don't know what it means. They've got some sickly sentimental notion as to God's love. But the Bible never does that. It never leaves it at that. It knows us so well that it knows that it's got to define exactly the use of its own terms. We must know what this love is, so Paul gives us this doctrinal exposition of it. Then the second point is that our conduct, as I say, is always determined by our doctrine. As a man thinks, so he is. It's true in every realm. All of us, uh, by our conduct and behavior, are proclaiming our views, our philosophy of life. It's inevitable. Our uh, conduct, behavior, is determined by our thinking. Even if it's lack of thinking, it comes out in our conduct. As a man thinks, so he is. Very well. As the Christian thinks, and that he thinks in terms of his doctrines, so he behaves. Inevitably, our conduct is determined by our doctrine. And then my last point at this stage is just this. That the measure of our realization of the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is the extent to which we are manifesting this love in our lives. Isaac Watts, you see, is perfectly right. He says, love so amazing, so divine, demands. Demands. Now, some people think they're ultra-pious by changing that demands into shall have. No, that's quite wrong. That means that they think they've seen it all. That goes on demanding, and you'll never come to the end of the demand. 
If you feel you've come to the end of the demand, well, you haven't understood it. There's no end to it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands. And it goes on demanding. Don't change Isaac Watts there. He was right. Demands my soul, my life, my all. You prove that he shall have it in your conduct, not as you sing, but as you're in your home and as you're at the bench in the, or in the shop or in the profession. It's much easier to sing it, isn't it, than to practice it, but it's the practice that proves that you really are doing it. Very well, I say, that is the measure of our understanding and appreciation of the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my life that tells to what extent I really have seen that and known it and understood it. Now then, let us look at these two matters. First of all, the statement of the doctrine. We've got to look at the actual terms that the apostle implies. Walk in love, he says, as Christ also hath loved us. How has Christ loved us? How can I know the love of Christ? Is it something purely subjective? No. He says it's primarily, essentially objective. I can prove it, says the apostle. I can demonstrate it. Something's been done which proves it outside you. And what is it? Well, here's the first thing. He hath loved us. How? Well, by and hath given himself for us. But the first thing is that Christ hath loved us. I wonder whether we realize what that means. What the apostle is saying is this, that the whole of our Lord's activity was produced and determined solely and entirely by his love. Let me put the emphasis like this. Uh, even as Christ also hath loved us. And there it is. How do you measure the love of Christ? Well, you measure the love of Christ by knowing yourself. Hath loved us. He doesn't say that the measure of his love is that he loves his heavenly Father. Oh, no. This is the measure of Christ's love. That he loved us. You see, you'll never know the love of Christ truly until you have grasped the Christian doctrine of sin and until you've realized the truth about yourself. If, if you feel you're a very good person uh, and indeed have lived such a good life and have done so much good and have never done anybody any harm, well, of course, uh, it would have been wrong in him if he hadn't loved you, wouldn't it? And that doesn't tell you very much about his love, does it? But when you realize that the truth about us is what Paul was saying there in that fifth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, well, then you begin to see something of the love of God. What are we? Well, we're not only without strength, we are ungodly. We are sinners. We are enemies of God. We are vile. In me, says Paul again, that is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Hath loved us. There's the measure. From there down to there. You see, you cannot have a true conception of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the full teaching of this gospel. It's not just talking about love vaguely. This is love. 
You, you must have some standard by which to measure it. And he hath loved us entirely of his own love. He hath loved us. There was nothing in us to recommend it, nothing to draw it, nothing to attract it. Ugly, vile, foul, those are the terms that are used. Hateful and hating one another, says Paul to Titus. That's what we wear. And it's only to the extent that you and I realize, oh, what horrible creatures we are by nature, and as the result of sin, and as the result of our inheritance from Adam, it's only as we realize all that that we begin to understand the meaning of the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ hath loved us. These people that uh, Paul has been describing in the previous chapter, you remember what he's been saying about them, these Gentiles who walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That's the sort of people he's loved us, loved us. That's the first thing. <laughs> but come along, let us proceed. The next thing he says is this, hath loved us and hath given himself for us. Now look at this statement, hath given himself. A better translation would be, hath given himself up. Hath given himself up for us. Now this is important, uh, it's, and it's important we should emphasize it for this reason. He didn't uh, merely uh, allow things to happen to him. It wasn't passive. He hath given himself up. He was active in this. And the apostle is very anxious that that should be emphasized. Also, he is emphasizing this, you see, that he didn't merely give up his possessions. He did give up many possessions in this way. Take that exposition which the Apostle gives of this very phrase in that second chapter of the Epistle to the Philippians which I read to you. Here it is. Who being in the form of God, as the authorized puts it, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which really means this, did not regard that as a prize to be held on to, to be clutched at. He didn't hold on to his prerogatives, the prerogatives of his eternal deity. No, no. He laid that aside. He emptied himself. He divested himself of these signs and insignia of his everlasting glory. He gave that up, as it were, for the time being. He laid that aside. He emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. Here is a theme to occupy us for all eternity. I'm simply asking you to look at it this morning. He gave up things which he possessed and possessed them as a right. He didn't clutch on to this right of his, this prerogative of Godhead there with the Father and all its signs and accompaniments. No, he deliberately laid them aside. Oh, as uh, the Apostle puts it in writing the second epistle to the Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, 
There is an indication of the, uh, the possessions, as I described them, which he laid aside. He gave uh, his possessions, as it were, and put them into the background, and not only took on him human nature, but came, as we are told, in the form of a servant, humbled himself, not only to become a man, but to become a servant, an artisan. Consider all that that involved in the way of laying aside. And he did lay all that aside. But the Apostle's point is this, that he didn't merely give all those things. He did give them all. But he gave himself. Himself. His life. His very self. He gave it all up as a sacrifice. Not the things which he could commend and lay aside, but his very self. Submitted himself, sacrificed himself utterly, absolutely. And as I say again, we must emphasize the activity involved here, the positive nature of what he did. He gave up himself for us. Not a passive something. You remember how our Lord himself put this. You'll find it recorded in the 10th chapter of John's Gospel where he puts it like this. Therefore he says, Doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down of myself. That's what the Apostle is saying. And it is tremendously important to realize that. You see, it adds to the measure of the love. It wasn't a passive submission. It was an active, deliberate, positive. As he said, you remember, uh, towards the end, that he, he must go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man must be lifted up, he says. I must go. They tried to dissuade him, he said, no, I must go. And when they tried to defend him, even Peter with a sword, he says, put it back. Don't you know that I could command twelve legions of angels and could be carried to heaven without going through this? I've come to do it. I must. The hour is come. We must emphasize the activity, the deliberate character of it all. He gave himself up. And then we come to these two great terms. An offering and a sacrifice. What's an offering? Well, an offering is a gift that is presented. Something that is offered to another. You come and you present your gift. Well, you're presenting your offering. And what the apostle here says is that he thus gave up himself as an offering to God. That word offering stands for that and really doesn't define what the apostle is saying. But the second word does. A sacrifice. Now, what is the meaning of this term? Well, here is one of these crucial points. The meaning of sacrifice you discover when you go back to your Old Testament. The apostle was a Pharisee, well versed in his Old Testament scriptures, 
When he preached, he always argued out his case from the Old Testament. The New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old. The Old points forward to the New. What the New means by sacrifice is what the Old means by sacrifice. You see, the Holy Spirit guided the early church, which was mainly Gentile in character, to preserve its Old Testament. And the Old Testament is absolutely essential. And a Christian who thinks he can do without the Old Testament is just displaying his ignorance. You don't understand the new without the old. Take a great epistle like the epistle to the uh, Hebrews. You don't begin to understand it unless you know the Old Testament teaching about sacrifices and offerings and shedding of blood and so on. Well, here's the term. What does it mean? Well, a sacrifice was something which was offered by a priest upon an altar. You go back to the book of Leviticus and so on. And you will find that God had given full instructions to his servant Moses uh, how all these various sacrifices should be defined and how they should be presented and offered. God was there indicating to Moses by means of those types and symbols uh, the only way whereby finally men could be reconciled unto him. They were all pointing forward uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the sacrifice. Very well, that's the meaning of the term sacrifice. You remember what happened. An animal was taken. And it had to be a perfect animal. It had to be free from any blemish. They never sacrificed and offered an animal that had blemish. It had to be entirely without blemish. And then having taken the animal, the high priest representing the people put his hands upon the head of the animal. What was he doing? Well, he was symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the animal. The sins are now on the animal. Then what do they do? Well, the animal is slain. His life is taken from him. His blood is poured out and collected in a bowl. The animal is slain because he is now receiving the punishment due to the guilt of the sins of the people whose sins have been transferred to him. And then you remember what they did. They took this blood and they presented it to God in the innermost sanctuary of the temple, there before the altar. They sprinkled it on the altar and before the altar. And then they took the body of the animal, put it upon an altar, and there they burned it. And the smell ascended up into the presence of God. A sacrifice. That's what is meant by the term sacrifice. And what the apostle is saying here, that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up as a sacrifice, as an offering in that sense, as the animal that was to be slain, the blood was to be collected having been shed, it was to be offered, and his body was to be broken, an offering and a sacrifice. The teaching is, you see, as I will develop in a moment, that that is what was happening when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross on Calvary's hill and his body was broken and his blood was shed, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Ah, yes, but we got one more term, a sweet-smelling savor, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, this need present no difficulty at all. It is the savor of a sweet smell. What does that mean? Perhaps the simplest way of expounding it is for me to read to you two verses from the eighth chapter of the book of Genesis. I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. Noah, 
we are told, after the flood, builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now listen. And the Lord smelled a sweet savour. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. This is the position. Here is this man whom God had chosen, this man who had pleased God, and who was saved with his family in the ark. He comes out of the ark, and one of the first things he does is to build an altar. He's doing it now to show his gratitude to God. And he takes these clean animals, and there he offers them upon the altar, and he burns them. And the smell ascended, and it was pleasant to God. This is a great anthropomorphism, of course. But you see, you have to have these anthropomorphisms because of our failure to understand. It gives us some conception of the pleasure that this thing gave to God. It regards God as if he were a man, and he smells this smell ascending from the offering and the sacrifice, and it pleased him. It was a sweet smell. It was satisfactory to God. God liked it. God enjoyed it. It, God smelled a sweet savor. And then, because it pleased him, he said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. And what the apostle is teaching us is this, that the offering and the sacrifice of the Son of God upon the cross came up into the presence of God as something that pleased him, that satisfied him. Something that gave him joy and pleasure. Yes, but more, it means this, that God was indeed fully satisfied with what had been done. His law made certain demands upon sinners. Well, now Christ has done this, and God says he's satisfied. It's a sweet-smelling savor, a savor of a sweet smell. God is perfectly satisfied with it. Our Lord said, it is finished, and I believe the Father said, yes, it is finished. It's enough. I require no more. A savor of a sweet smell. It ascended into the presence of God. God and his holy law are fully satisfied and pleased, and man is reconciled to God and can be forgiven. A sweet-smelling savor. That leaves me with one other term you noticed. He hath loved us, and hath given himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor for us, for us. Well, here it is. Now we must be careful how we interpret this. What's it mean? Well, it means in our stead, in our room, in our place. Now, I don't uh, translate it like that solely because of the term itself. The term itself can be translated like that, but sometimes it is not translated like that. I am not basing the whole of my doctrine on the word for. I am basing it on the word for plus the use of the term sacrifice and the whole context. And taking them all together, I say the four means here, in our stead. It is vicarious. It is substitutionary. 
The word plus the context, I say, makes that inevitable. It's no use arguing just on the word for, because that can mean that and it can't mean that. It's neutral in a sense. So you've got to interpret the word for always in the light of its surrounding context. And as you do so, I say you are driven to this inevitable conclusion that he did all that in our stead, in our place, on our behalf. Very well, now then, having looked at the terms, we can draw our conclusions. What are they? Well, here they are. That is how the Lord Jesus Christ manifested his love toward us. How? Well, let me say again, not in some ways in which it has often been interpreted. What was it that was happening there on the cross? What's the meaning of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it just a case of passive resistance? Is that what we've got there? Is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the supreme pacifist? Is it just the case of a good and a noble person whose teaching was much too good for mankind centuries ahead of his time, who taught this wonderful ethic and who practiced it in his life, was misunderstood and maligned, and there he is with his cruel enemies condemning him to an unjust death. But instead of fighting, instead of raising an army, instead of even battling his case in court, he just does nothing. Passive resistance, pacifism. He just does nothing at all. He wants to conquer by love. Is that it? Well, if you have followed my exposition, you must realize that that is impossible as an explanation. He gave himself up. It's active. This is not a passive action. So the death of our Lord is not just a manifestation of the cruelty of men. We mustn't put our emphasis upon men there. You remember how Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost at Jerusalem, said this, that that had happened according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He says, you and your princes have put him to death by wicked hands, but he says it is according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He repeats it again in his speech in the fourth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. He says, it's God who caused Herod and Pontius Pilate to do what they did to him. God had already determined it. Don't look at men. No, no, he's not just submitting passively to the cruel actions of men. That isn't what's happening at all. He came in order to go there. He could have avoided it. He could have escaped. But he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. He could have commanded the twelve legions of angels, but he didn't. He said, if I do that... How shall I f fulfill all righteousness? No, no. The cup is there and he'd come to drain it. He'd come. He says, for this hour I am come. Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. For this hour I came. All along the line, I say. It is the intense activity that is being emphasized. So that as we look at his death upon the cross, we must not think of it as our Lord just putting up with what men have done to him in their cruelty and in their malignity. It isn't even our Lord just going on being obedient to his Father's will, even though it includes suffering thus at the hands of men. No, no, that's not enough. 
That's not sacrifice. It doesn't bring in the content of that great word with all the Old Testament parallels. Well, what is it? Well, again, I say, the great thing is the activity, the voluntary character of it all. No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He said that. It isn't I who am saying it. He gave himself up. He offered himself. He gave himself as a sacrifice. He became, I say again, the victim on whose head our sins were laid. That's the Old Testament imagery. That is what God taught Moses to teach the people. The sins must be transferred to the victim that's to be offered. Here is the victim. He made himself the victim for us. And it was as one who had become victim for us that he was smitten, that he was killed, that his blood was shed and his body broken. As that spotless lamb became the substitute for the sins of the people under the old dispensation, he became our substitute. John the Baptist saw it at the very beginning. He pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the, the Lamb that God himself has provided, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world, a sacrifice, the one to whom the sins and the guilt are transferred, and who then is smitten and slain. God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed, my dear friends, I'll tell you why the Christian church is as she is. She's been evacuating all that from the death of the cross and has been describing it as some vague manifestation of love. And they've been weeping in sorrow and in sympathy for him. But don't waste, he said to the women of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves. Don't be sorry for me, he said. I've come to do this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All the teaching of the scriptures, do you see, from beginning to end, emphasize the same thing. That this is where you see the love of God. That God sent and gave up even to that death and laid upon him the sins of men, his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave to that, to the shame, the agony, the suffering, the torment. Yes, the separation between them for the second as he was made sin. He gave him up for all that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
That's the measure of the love. And the son, you see, he gave himself willingly and voluntarily. Listen to the apostle putting it to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ, he says, hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth upon a tree. Oh, it's not mere passive resistance. It's not the mere death of a martyr. No, it's infinitely bigger. He's been made a curse. He was made of a woman made under the law. What for? Well, that he might redeem them that are under the law. How does he redeem them that are under the law? Like this. Made of a woman made under the law that he might receive the curse of the law. The law says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He was made a curse for us. Nothing less than that. He bore our sins. He took upon him voluntarily our position. He'd already indicated, of course, at the very beginning of his public ministry when he went to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John couldn't understand it. But he insisted upon John baptizing him. Why? Oh, he was identifying himself with our sins. That was the only reason. He didn't need to be baptized. John was right. No, no, but as the Messiah, as the Deliverer, he identifies, he puts himself with us in our position. Our sins come upon him. He takes the burden. I must, he says. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it behoveth us to, for, to fulfill all righteousness. And so, from beginning to end, it is the same thing. Very well, my friends, what I'm suggesting is this. That no one really begins to understand the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who doesn't believe the substitutionary and penal doctrine of the atonement. Think it out. Where do you see the love of God? If his son is simply suffering there in a useless manner. Suffering the cruelty and all that men are doing. To, what's the point of it? It's useless suffering. If it achieves nothing, if it isn't substitutionary, if it isn't penal, if he isn't really dealing with sins, I say there's no point in it. It's sheer cruelty. There's no love there. And so on with your passive resistance and all the rest of it. Oh, the tragedy. That men should think that they're exalting the love of God in that way. Whereas in reality they're just evacuating it of its real essence and of its endless eternal profundities. Oh no, here is where you see the love of God. That God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He didn't spare him anything. He poured upon him the vials of his wrath against sin. He didn't spare anything. Why? For us. Because of his love for us. That. Not what men did to him, but what God did to him. As the judge of all the world, the righteous judge eternal, the Holy Father, and the Son gave himself willingly. There was no compulsion. He set his face steadfastly. His one desire was to do his Father's will and thus to bring about salvation. And it is only as you see him as the innocent victim 
the substitute that has voluntarily put himself in our place to receive our punishment, that you even begin to understand and to measure the eternal love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, there it is, says Paul. Even as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. My dear friends, there's the doctrine. Second point, here it is. That's the lesson for us. Walk in love as Christ hath also loved us. I won't insult you by keeping you to work it out in detail. Isn't it all obvious? What do I see there? He didn't consider himself. Though he was equal with God, thought it not robbery to hold on to it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Look, every man not on his own things, but also on the things of the other, says the apostle to the Philippians. That's what our Lord did. Let this mind, that was his mind, he didn't consider himself. He didn't consider his rights. He didn't consider his innocence. He didn't consider his feelings. He didn't consider his comforts. He didn't consider his ease. He didn't consider himself at all. He gave himself up. Walk in love even as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us. And the only other point I would ask you to consider is, again, as I said at the beginning, that he did all that in spite of us. As our Lord argues at the end of the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, there's no merit in loving those who love you. The Gentiles do that. There's no point. There's nothing wonderful being kind to those who are kind to you. Everybody does it. The worst man in the world does that. Oh, this is what makes us Christian and proves that we are. That we do to others what he has done for us. We are ungodly, sinners, enemies, vile, nothing to recommend us. And he did that for us. Gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. So that when you and I meet difficult people, people who have nothing to recommend them at all, who are as vile and as objectionable and as foul as they can be, who attack us and persecute us and deal with us spitefully and malign us, that's how we are to deal with them. Walk in love. Pray for them. Bring yourself to feel sorry for them. So sorry that you'll have a burning desire within you that they may be delivered and you'll get on your knees and you'll feel something of your heart breaking for them because they're such victims of sin and of Satan. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that persecute you and use you despitefully and malign you. Walk, walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself up for us, an offering 
and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling sin. Is there anything in the world this morning which is comparable to the privilege of being a Christian? We are asked and invited and called upon to live like that. And we are only the only people in the world who can live like that. No man who is not a Christian can live like that. You need to be born again. You must have a new nature and a new life. You must have your eyes open to this blessed truth. Nothing but that can ever enable us and persuade us to walk in love even as Christ did. What a privilege. What an honor. What a high calling to be imitators of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.